This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. I am your host Matthew Rushing and with me as he is always is Dan Gunther. Dan, um, you seem to be in a very strange place right now. It's surrounded by are you at some sort of Orion bar or something? Because there's some green people behind you. I see some dancing, people serving drinks. What's going on, man? Well, I I, I don't really want to talk to talk too much about it. I mean, I, I shouldn't really be saying this, but it's kind of tied into that whole Section 31 secret mission I was on uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, that yeah. makes sense, yeah. But, okay. I mean, you know, I probably shouldn't be saying that out loud. I, I think... The Orions around me. We should, we yeah. should, yeah. Um, well, I'm glad, though, at least they've got you at some nice dive. Um, you know, nothing better than hanging out with some Orions. I hear they have uh, a great beer. Uh, it's green, but it's never St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> which is kind of strange. I'm, I'm not so. going to lie. There are some perks. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, that's, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything about it, man. <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, you know, again, the last thing we need you is you taken away, so... Funny thing is, we, you know, we had so much news last week, Dan. It was insane. And this week, we don't really have any news, um, other than the fact that we heard that Greg Cox is is working on that 50th anniversary novel. So that's great. Um, but we already kind of talked about that last week. So uh, with us talking about the new Enterprise book, Uncertain Logic, you know, maybe we should just jump into the feature yeah there's uh, like you say there's not a whole lot going on uh writers are writing you know let's leave them to that and get some great novels out of them and uh yeah talk about this latest one that's come out on uh christopher bennett's uncertain logic uh really excellent novel and uh i'm excited to talk about it well dan as we said we are going to be talking about uncertain logic and this is the third book in the enterprise series that uh, christopher has been doing and and actually you know i don't really think of it so much as the enterprise series anymore because there's no enterprise as we knew it from the show now very cool there is an actual andorian enterprise um that's part of starfleet it's the andorian word for enterprise i don't know how to say that and i'm not going to try here but if you want to find out you can read it in the book which i thought that was fun so at least there is some enterprise in starfleet right now 
even though it is an Andorian vessel that's an Enterprise. Yeah, kind of a nice little cheat to get around uh, that, you know, the Fifth Federation starship to be named Enterprise, so they can't have another one in Starfleet. But this kind of Andorian workaround, I thought that was really clever. Yeah. (laughs) I tend to think of this as really the Rise of the Federation series because, I mean, that's what it is. We are very much in the vein of seeing the the obviously the founding of the federation and and as it moves forward how all of this comes together which it, for me is is really exciting now one thing i wanted to just kind of ask you uh this is definitely a prequel series do you see any correlation between this and the star wars prequels because there's a lot of politics that go on in this that we'll we'll talk about that kind of later but just i wondered if if you saw that as well yeah there's certainly some elements uh that it shares in common kind of a building of a foundation of what's to come and laying the groundwork uh in this case of the the federation and and the kind of universe that we're going to see in the future uh so yeah there's and and like you said the politics of people jockeying for position and trying to uh you know, build things the way they want from their perspective and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a lot in common for sure. Well, and it's, you know, I think it's really interesting, and I guess we'll just talk about it now. <laughs> um, we, there's no real rhyme or reason to our outline other than just talking about random things that we thought were interesting in the book. But so it, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, at this point in, in the Star Trek history, it really is the rise of the Federation that's at the forefront. It's not necessarily just one crew, you know, because it is the, it's the foundation. This has to be built for us to get to where we're going to have a Kirk uh, and the rest of those ships that'll go forward and explore because right now everything is fledgling. You know, it's at the beginning. And without, uh, we need this basis of politics. So that's, that's where you're kind of stuck in the story. Um, and if you don't like that kind of thing, then you're probably not going to enjoy these books. But what I think is special about them is that Chris finds a way to make this interesting, you know. Um, and I think it's fascinating to see the way that these alien races all kind of come together and are trying to find a way to work together. You know, the Vulcans, the Andorians, the Tellarites, the humans, this... Um, the Alpha Centauri, you know, it, it's just, it's really, really fascinating to me. And obviously, uh, you know, the Federation kind of being a expansion on what we think of as, as American democracy and how all people, different types of people come together to create something. It is really, really interesting. Uh, or really, honestly, any true democracy in any country, that's how it kind of works. So, um, I, I think it's really neat to kind of see that play out. And, and of course, it gives him the opportunity to do what Star Trek does best, which is is really be a play for what we see in our own world. And um, so, yeah, it's just really interesting. That's one thing that, that Christopher Bennett seems to be very good at is drawing parallels and making allegories to what's happening uh, in today's world. I'm seeing a lot of that in this novel, uh, like you say, with the politics for sure. And going back to what you say about, you know, kind of the story being about the big picture, um, I I love that. That's one of my favorite things in Star Trek. 
I, I really, of course, enjoy the original series and the next generation where it's focusing on one ship and one crew. But as you know, my real love for stories comes in in Deep Space Nine, where we see a lot of those political stories, those big, large, sweeping, expansive stories about empires and governments and politics. And another of the reasons that season four of Enterprise is just so great to me because we get a lot of that with, well, for example, the story that this book takes off of, which is the um, uh, the Forge, Awakening, and Kirshara three-parter. And also my one of my favorite uh, of those trios of stories, too, was uh, Babel One, United, and the Enar, which really was kind of the building blocks of the Federation you know, species coming together against a common foe and and really showing the building blocks of the Federation. And that's one reason that I'm just absolutely loving this series. The getting to see these races starting out and just kind of just starting to work together and, and how that happens and how that comes together. It's really, really great to to read about. Well, and what's so interesting about this as well is, is, you know, it's kind of showing us the importance of politics done well. That politics is not a bad thing. You know, Archer's even reminded of that in this book, that politics is not a bad thing. It's it's when it's done badly or poorly and, and when it's used as a weapon, basically, as so many people are using it in this series and in this book specifically. And you know, one of the things I, I think that was a hallmark for, you know, Archer's the characters, we kind of think of him, we're starting to see him as, I think, even just the George Washington of, you know, this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the guy who doesn't really want to be the politician, but he keeps having that kind of thrust upon him. Like, people are telling him, you need to, you need, you should probably think about being into politics because you're actually really good at it. Um you know, he doesn't really want to be this person in power, per se, like that. He wants, he's always said he wants to be the explorer, mm-hmm. you know. And and yet he's he's very good at it. And I think what we're seeing with him is that whole idea of, you know, honestly, I, anyone who seeks power, I think for the most part, it's not truly altruistic for the most I mean, I, I can't. People, somebody like Archer, who his, who, I see him kind of being pushed into the limelight, um, and excelling at it. You know, he's a I, he's a servant politician. You know, he he's really doing it because he doesn't desire the power. He just wants to um, do what's best for all involved, mm-hmm. and that's a huge difference between just anybody else I see. And, and unfortunately, I don't see any politicians anywhere in the world today who are anything like Archer, which is is, is kind of sad. Um, you know, I, I feel like most of the politicians, almost well, all the politicians <laughs> I see, even ones I might kind of like, there's more of that whole, I'm in it to stay in power than, I'm, than I am in it to, you know, help the the society at large mm-hmm. and um yeah so i i guess reading this i was a little bit saddened because archer's reminding me of the type of politician we just don't see anymore yeah it's really great to see uh 
a politician like Archer, who's who's very reluctant to take the reins of power. It's only when, you know, he's finally convinced that, you know what, you're really good at this. You know, when you're not making speeches about gazelles, you're, you're really <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, this story really juxtaposes, I think, Archer with the character of Loss, who is desperate to hang on to power. And even though his motivations might be, in his own mind, altruistic to return Vulcan to this this place of power really when it comes down to it is he wants to be the one to lead him and we see several instances where he's manipulating things and going back on issues that he said were you know the stalwart position on these issues and then he flips back on them because well it's in his best interests now he's very much concerned about getting power back and maintaining that. And Archer is really the polar opposite of that. He does not want to become the commander-in-chief of Starfleet, but finally realizes, well, you know, I can probably do the most good there, so okay, I'll give it a shot. Well, and what I really liked, too, is that I love that Archer saying that in this book is is because he's taking responsibility. Um, he, he tells, you know, to Paul that... I am responsible for what's happened. You know, I, I have to take that upon myself. And in a lot of ways, Archer is the reason the Federation exists. That's what makes him so important. And he's taken responsibility for those actions. And to do that best might just be to be the head of Starfleet. And I think you can see the seeds planted in his mind almost that he might be the Federation president one day, which we know he will be. So I really like the way that they're building that character. And and, and Chris is doing a great job with that, I think, of, of really showing the incremental growth that Archer has been going through over the last, you know, 13 years of his time from beginning, um, you know, broken bow incident all the way till now. And... Um, it's been a really cool road Mm -hmm. and it's been a really cool journey to be on, to be with Archer and just see him come to this point, you know, because when he makes that speech at the end of the book, it's just truly fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, and instead of, uh, you know, again, he's, he's not the guy who's wanting power because power as we're reminded abhors a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And once you gain, power for the wrong reasons you never want to let it go right um and as we can see through all the storylines here um there are people who are desiring power mainly just because they want to be the ones in power Mm -hmm. um they want to be the ones even veloc he's he wants to be the one that everybody and vulcan bows down to basically um so he's a little bit like zod (laughs) kneel before veloc exactly yeah um, I remember when I first uh, found out, when it was first revealed that Archer would eventually be the president of the Federation, I, I remember thinking that I was kind of like a little trepidatious about that. Does he just kind of get it because he's our main character and, you know, will it, you know, will he just get that position because he's, I don't know, supposed to get there? But in in these novels, Christopher L. Bennett is writing them in such a way that Archer is earning that. He is working hard and he is going to earn that position someday and it won't feel forced it won't feel like it's a small universe syndrome thing it will feel like he's the right man for the job and i I think that's great i think that's excellent 
Well, and that is one of the things, you know, I was reading the Trek BBS boards before we were on uh, about the book and somebody was kind of complaining about how, you know, you're just filling in all these gaps. And um, that's what tie-in fiction is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's literally the definition. <laughs> <laughs> just go look it up. We fill in the gaps. Yeah. That's what they do is is they fill in those gaps and try to make sense of the things that we don't see in the episodes. And, you know, specifically here with the Enterprise series and the Rise of the Federation series, there's a hell of a lot of gaps to fill in. And we only have bits and pieces of information and some of it's a little bit contradictory. So you have to try and make sense of all mm. that. Um, and it's a little bit like trying to figure out and understand Tripp's death. It doesn't really make sense, so how do we make sense of right. it? And, you know, that's really what Chris has to do with these books. And I, I think he does a pretty magnificent job. And one of the neatest things is, is he really has an amazing canvas to play with because there's a lot of these races that we just don't know crap about. I mean, it just the Deltons or really the Orions or, I mean, playing with all of these races that we just don't have a real understanding mm-hmm. of. And honestly... When you sit down and think about it, there are only a few races in Star Trek that we actually know a lot about. Cardassians and Klingons, Vulcans, and uh, I would say um, Andorians. Mm -hmm. In each of those very varied um, amounts, you know, and then you got your Bajorans and your your Dominion. Um, But on a whole... If you were to like write out everything you knew, you could probably put it on one page on a wiki, right. and that's it. You know, so it's it, it really isn't a ton of information. And then we have all these other races, you know, that are were in Enterprise or um, that we've just kind of seen on a Federation Council scene and like Star Trek Four, um, you know, are in the motion picture like the Deltons mm-hmm. or any of these kind of things where there's just you you can just start painting with amazing brushes, you yeah. know, um, and uh, creating happy trees all <laughs> over the place. Like, well, exactly. Like with the Deltons, as we learn in the motion picture, they have to take an oath of celibacy before they join, join Starfleet. Well, why exactly do they have to do that? Well, we kind of find out in this novel exactly why they have to do that. And I... I they can drive you crazy. Literally insane. <laughs> yeah, their their potency is so strong that they will drive you insane. Without without so. getting too crude, it's just that good. <laughs> yeah, it well, it is. And um yeah, I I think um well we go ahead and talk about it. That's pretty interesting too, you know, that whole idea of I really liked the way that that Bennett was was dealing with that issue of Deltons and their sexuality uh, because it was really reverential to the idea of sex, mm-hmm. which is it's it's not meant to be misused or to hurt other people or to gain some sort of power over people. It's meant as an expression of love between people, um, and, it, and, it, and it shouldn't be taken lightly, right. you know. Um, and there's there's no... Um, you know, Judeo-Christianness to it at all. Um, but it reminds me of what I believe about it because of my faith, which is that it is something special. It's not just to be taken lightly. It's not just to be done with anybody. It's 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 an experience between two people that goes beyond the mere physical 
aspect of you just, you know, coming together. And I think that was a really neat thing to see. Star Trek even, and, and, and Bennett in this book, I think, even talk about that it's it is something that goes way beyond just the physical act Mm -hmm. and i think that's a really nice thing to see uh shown because um you know it 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 has a greater impact than just two people coming together there's a there's a whole emotional side there's a spiritual side to it there's a mental side to Mm -hmm. it um and you know it's it's not just a thing that two people do and then they can go their separate ways and they're not really affected by yeah that's something that for example, in this story is something that could be written about very immaturely or or just kind of right. played with and I mean I made that I made the comment it's just that good. You know, a little bit, whatever. But you know, in the in the terms of this story, it really is treated as something magnificent and special and uh really brings empathy into play and really creates a bond between two people. And the Deltons describe the humans as sexually immature. Um, so we're able to bond with them, but it overwhelms us and we're not ready for that level of uh, intimacy, I guess, um, because it's just too overwhelming to humans. I thought that was a really interesting uh, way to go with it. And I I thought that the experiences that people had I I could see that becoming kind of something that's just too much to handle, too overwhelming because we haven't developed that way of experiencing things before. And and I thought it was just a really interesting exploration of empathy and kind of what it means to connect with another being. The whole idea of, you know, us being sexually mature as compared to the Deltons as well. I mean, the Deltons have a whole pheromone side to things that that humans don't, and therefore it is on a higher level. You know, they have had to a- adapt because of their own physiology when it came to having, you know, intimate relations with one another. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. That, you know, because we don't have that same physiology, we are compatible, and yet... At the same time, we're not because um, I, I think, I don't know, maybe if a human was trained or something in the, in the ways of the Deltons and become a, became accustomed, obviously, I think by the motion picture time frame, um, you know, we see that um, Commander Decker and Ilea have had a relationship and he's not di- he's not dying he's not crazy you know they've obviously had a very intimate relationship before and broken it off so there has been some aspect where deltons have been able to find a way to be with us humans but it still does have a pretty big impact you know um it's funny cuz deltons and betazoids seem very similar to me in that way you know that when they join with somebody physically like that and they're together there's a whole other aspect to it which i again i just think it's really interesting star trek talking about this whole idea of um that sex is not just a mere physical act it's something special mm-hmm. and uh and i really love that we uh devna has that that orion has that awaken in her this idea of compassion and empathy that wasn't there before because 
For the Orions, they just use sex as a weapon to get what they want, not for anything else. And in the end, they're really missing out on what it means to, you know, be together with somebody. Well, um, you know, Dan, one of the other things that's really big in this book, I think, is um, the whole idea. And I think this flows right from this whole talk about, you know, the the Deltons and the Orions and that whole situation that happens with the Starfleet crew, uh, a Commander Paris, um, which I'm wondering if is, is related to the Paris family. I'm thinking that they are. Mm. <laughs> um, and so uh, it was interesting because that, that character reminded me a little bit of the recklessness of Tom. So apparently it does run in the Paris family. <laughs> but um, this whole idea of the the power of devaluation um you know and the impact of devaluing people because they're poor they're old they're unborn they're different and really how that leads to the mistreatment and pain for those by people that are in power and, and the reason that happened is you know we see all of these people across the board uh, the way that selfishness and greed is driving them, whether it's the Orions in this story, whether it's the Vulcans led by Veloss, whether it's the WWA led by Fabian, um, the 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 race that um, the Pioneer runs into as they're studying the wear. And I just, I, I really thought that that was such an interesting thing. And the character of Devna she has this great realization she said now she understood that she had always had it wrong not just sex but life there's more to existence than jockeying for power and control people could give without expecting something in return they could be allies friends without the need to defend against common foes and there was so much more that she had no words for and i just think this is a really interesting idea is that it's it's when we take life cheaply um, and, and we place ourselves above somebody else that we're able to start devaluing them and how much we've seen that just throughout all of human history. Um, and, and that when we devalue those that are poor or weak or are unable to speak for themselves, um, that we are doing a disservice to those people. Um, and I, I thought that that was really powerful and, you know, um, it's a it's a hard thing because uh, I I see that the desire to be at that level is is one thing, but I I feel like I don't know there there's a there's an undercurrent of greed in 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 all of humanity mm-hmm. that really makes this difficult and almost impossible to really have happen um w- without some help uh and so yeah i don't know um and and that's where i guess uh for me um you know faith has come in to to give me the the reason to want to be like that to fight against my nature and i don't know it's it's just an interesting thing i just love though this point that this there's a power that happens and it comes from when we start to see ourselves bigger than other people and better than other people, and it becomes easy to kind of devalue that person and then treat them 
as if they're less than human. Definitely. And this is a this is a theme that plays through like you say every every subplot in this novel and in a lot of ways even in in very subtle ways uh for example I'm thinking of uh when Travis um is interacting with that alien woman and she gets so angry that he won't even tell her why they're there or what they're doing. And even that was just a little bit of power differential. Um, And maybe that's a good idea. For example, we'll later get the prime directive and that sort of thing. But I noticed like even just that little bit was kind of mirroring that overarching theme. And I think the biggest example of it in the novel is uh, Vloss and his Vulcan um, brethren who wish to expel all non-Vulcans from Vulcan and, and make Vulcans strong because they th- they see themselves as better than humans and better than all non-Vulcans. And for me, the moment that just crystallized this and, and just made it so apparent exactly where this would all end up was when the Cardassian poet Elosia makes his, his public statement to the people of Vulcan saying, I come from a world that has taken this idea to its to its logical conclusion. And Yeah, to the nth degree, exactly. exactly. Yeah. We've played this we've played this logical experiment out, but in reality. Yeah, exactly. And and he's there to tell them that it's not good for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're in power or not. Everyone's afraid of everyone else. There's it's corrupt. Everyone's, you know, fearing for their own position because someone could sell them out. You know, your own family might turn against you because you're not pure. You're not embodying the ideals of whatever society you've decided is better than everything else. And it's horrific. And we see that, of course, in other Star Treks on Cardassia, and we know what he's talking about. And it, he sees that Vulcan is on that path should they choose to follow Vloss, and it's not a pretty picture. It does fly in the face of survival of the fittest. But that's not really, that can't really be what it is. Mm. Or else you you would live like that, right? Mm. Like you, um, so there has to be an, another way, um, and and I think that we we're seeing that there's this the the most good for the most amount of people that that that's utilitarian, um, you know, I don't know. There it just seems to me that it's definitely pointing out the 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 dangers of living by the idea that it is just survival of the mm-hmm. fittest because then you you do only care about your group or yourself. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter about anybody else. No, we we do see that there is a huge evolutionary advantage to cooperation. For example, uh, humanity couldn't have gotten to where they are today, for example, if that hadn't come into play at various points in our evolution. And I think a lot of times people forget that and we start to get this idea that, you know, it is all about me and, you know, and they forget that we're all in this together, whether you're being a good um, steward of your planet, for example, protecting the environment, because, you know, if we keep 
doing what we're doing, it won't be here tomorrow or whatever. Sometimes people just forget that, you know, sometimes we need to come together and, and hack this world on <laughs> all together because looking out for number one, just yourself is not going to be a good long-term way to do things. I think that that is, is something too, that it goes to the value that we put on, on life and, 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 and starting with, with human life and saying that we're, we are all in this together and, you know, we, we have to protect the least among us, you know, um, because that's what makes us better people, you know, when we look out for somebody who can't look out for themselves or can't speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it's a we could go down a whole philosophical <laughs> road with this and get really in depth, but I I think the listeners you understand kind of where we're we're going and and just this is I think the power of of what Bennett is doing in this book. He's he's raising a lot of questions and. Um, whether or not the answers that are there are fully substantial or enough, that's for the reader to decide. And I think that's what's great is that we're having these kind of questions. And that's that's what good Star Trek does is it brings that out. And I think it's, it's really interesting because the main storyline here is the battle for the Vulcan soul. And... <laughs> Um, which sounds funny to say, even though we know Vulcans have souls, they have a whole spiritual side. It, it, they are one of the most logical races, and yet they have an intensely spiritual aspect to them. Um, we know that there is something beyond just flesh and blood with them too. So it's very interesting thing to see. And uh, the arguments over, you know, whether um, the Kishara is is you know in this book where we're getting. Was it actually real? Was it, um, is it legitimate? We have whole arguments about basically the historical Sirach, you know, just the way we do the historical Jesus. Um, and it, all mirroring that kind of reformation of Christianity and the, the, the tumultuous time period that that was because it was a reorientation and understanding of something that, people came to see as had been lost. Um, the Analects, uh, the the understanding of Sirach that, that had been around for so long, it really kind of playing off the idea of, of the Jewish faith with the Talmud, adding to the law of Moses and adding more laws by its interpretation. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I, I think Bennett does a great job of pulling all these things together because it makes it feel really familiar. So I'm, we're immediately understanding what's going on in the story. And that real-world application makes the story feel more applicable today. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to watch these these Vulcans go through this basically, um, for them, a very muted holy war. Um, <laughs> very and, logical uh, which, col- holy war. <laughs> a, a very logical holy war, yeah. But also because of the way that Veloss is using logic, which, as we know from Spock, is only the beginning of wisdom, and actually somebody else says that in the book as well, basically, that logic is only the beginning. It's not mm-hmm. the end. Because without... I, I, it's funny because without really that empathy or care or concern for others, logic is cold and unforgiving. Mm-hmm. And um, if we know anything about Vulcans later on, 
they can be cold um yet the ones we know the best like spock or tuvok are anything but uncaring right so I, I just it's really interesting to watch all of this play out with a race that would seem like it would be the farthest thing from anything kind of like spiritual or anything mm-hmm. like that. But the Vulcans are having a spiritual crisis. <laughs> I thought the exploration of logic, uh, especially through uh, the professor character, I think her ta- her name was Tanol. I can't remember exactly, but how she was justifying what she was doing. Mm-hmm. At the beginning. Yeah, Tanol, yeah. And then how actually, like, towards the end, her interpretation of logic was basically, I can't believe I've been wrong. The only logical thing to do now is to, you know, do what I can to stop Vloss. Um, but at the same time, her initial leap of logic, I suppose, just seemed very, very flawed to me. And it was really kind of frightening how she was using logic to justify exactly what it was she was doing and and how Vloss also uses his own kind of perverted sense of logic to justify everything that he does. It's uh, kind of scary when you think about it, what Vulcans can be capable of, even using the so-called philosophy of logic. Well, and I think it goes to show, I you know, <clears throat> the religion can be used to to do that but the lack of religion can be used to do that as well i mean you know uh, look at um russia and its concentration camps which killed 20 million or more people and that was the lack of of but we might just say that's kind of cold logic and power mm. um you know absolute power corrupting it, it's not one or the other anything can be taken and and turned evil you know but we all instinctively have an idea of that something's not right you know so i think that's the most interesting thing here and we have this whole back and forth here on vulcan of what's really best for the vulcan vulcan people and and um yeah in the end floss does kind of really become a, a one note villain like he's he's the he he becomes yeah he's very much a bond villain here he's doing it because he thinks it's best for the people but because he's also going to be in power and that's really what he cares about the most it's it's not really vulcans or romulans or he it, it, it's really because he wants to be right and he wants to be the one in power again <laughs> i really love that moment where archer basically accuses of accuses him of being an over the top cartoonish villain and he says something along the lines of, well, I may as well fulfill your expectations or something like that and goes right. even bigger. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, allow me to get a little bit more crazy. <laughs> Since um, you're going to die yeah. anyway, let me tell you my plan <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Well, so interesting, too. Like, did you catch this? Like, uh, so in the Clone Wars, the um, Mandalorians were once a a warrior race and then they became a pacifist race and throughout the clone wars there's a there's an um a sect of them called death watch that's trying to bring them back to their you know warrior race apparently vloss wants to turn romulans back to their their warrior heritage their warrior ways basically before surak almost 
so uh, Vulcans are the Mandalorians of the Star Trek universe. Hmm. Uh, Vulcan Mandalorians running around. That I could be. Can imagine them in those cool helmets and jetpacks. I was going to say that could very well be. I, I know in the original series we see the Romulans with some pretty cool helmets. So maybe yeah. maybe we get some Mandalorian yeah. style headgear going on, and the Vulcans can really I don't know, step that'd be out cool. and show their show off their fashion sense too. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe they could have some really nice shoulder pads, you know, out of armor. Because <laughs> we know how the Romulans like shoulder pads. Oh, yeah. So, especially by the 24th century. I mean, they are <laughs> rocking them like crazy. Oh, goodness. Um, You know, talking about just that idea of, of um, logic and philosophy, we've got to bring it back to a little more serious I thought it was so interesting how often a person's experience with a philosophy or the impact of that philosophy being acted upon them can lead somebody to embrace something new that they would have otherwise dismissed, basically to kind of give them a conversion experience to an idea that they would never have held before. And and I thought that was really neat that Scon in this book has had that experience with the the whole um logical thought of Veloss that brought him to the Cyrenite side. Mm-hmm. It was his personal experience of, of everything that, that uh, Veloss and his kind of Vulcan empire brought on, you know, Skon and his family that made him choose the other side, you know, that kind of gave him that conversion experience. And it, just really, really interesting watching all of this play out. And again, a place that we would one of the last places we'd expect to have some sort of spiritual struggle for the soul of of you know Vulcan um and I think it's just it's so exciting because it shows the depth of the Vulcan people that there's so much more and god I'm so glad that that um you know uh, the guys who created Enterprise took it on the chin when they just didn't give us the Vulcans we expected mm-hmm. they gave us much more interesting Vulcans so that we can actually see them grow into the Vulcans that we do know because that's such a much more interesting story. Mm. You know, um, I always wondered if that was intended from the start or not. Like, did they, did they intentionally do that or, um, I I don't know. I I think Braga and, uh, Berman knew what they were doing. I, I think that they, their whole thought process was that, you know, this is a hundred years before and Mm -hmm. we, would this race necessarily be exactly the same? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And plus it just gives you more to, I mean, it gives you whole storylines to do. Otherwise, you know, you just basically have more Tuvox and Spox. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely like to think that was the intention from the beginning because that, that three-parter we got was really excellent showing the yeah. restoration of the Vulcan we know and love. But I think even more than that, this story really takes that ball and and runs with it and really shows kind of the fallout from that and explores Vulcans in a way we've never really seen them before. And I think that's to coin a phrase fascinating it really is um and it was also interesting because it plays upon the 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 whole idea and and we talked about with us with tony daniel in his book you know um when you have characters who live a very long time they become arrogant and and vulcans are kind of known for their arrogance even in 
the 24th century, 23rd century, they come off as being arrogant. And it's because really they think that they know better, they're enlightened, they're wiser because they've lived so long. And what we see in this book is that people all over the place, even Trip learns this, it doesn't matter what time you're from or how long you've been around, you can still have something to learn from somebody else. And um, anytime, the moment that you think that you've learned it all is the moment you haven't learned anything. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. It's really cool to see, um, you know, the Vulcans. And that's what I always loved about T'Pol is, is how the fact that when she kind of learned that she had something to learn from humanity was the moment that, that you know, Archer kind of learned that he had something to learn from her. Mm. You know, um, and that reciprocal relationship. Yeah, when everybody kind of lowered their barriers to that initial kind of bristly relationship between humans and Vulcans, Enterprise got really, really interesting with the interplay of those three characters, especially Archer, Trip, and T'Pol. And they kind of, like you said, learned from each other and um, really kind of threw out their initial preconceptions and like I'm, I'm thinking of Archer, for example, carrying the Katra of Surak and realizing, like, oh, these Vulcans actually, you know, they they have this proud tradition and this uh, this this deep history, and now I really understand why they suppress their emotions, for example, because I know how dangerous they can be, and to Paul comes to appreciate jokes and passion with Trip and that sort of thing, and it, and it really it's. It's alongside Deep Space Nine, really the series where most of the characters get a lot of character growth, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it is. It is really cool, and it's kind of talking about Trip. I thought it was interesting in this book to kind of see the terrible price that he's been paying for the lies that he told, um, and at the same time, uh, coming face to face in this book, he tells Travis because he needs to because they're going to be working together you know that he's alive and Travis is so mad at him for not telling him sooner um, letting him think that he was dead and the impact that that's had on Trip and and what I really like here is that I've I've found throughout all of Bennett's books that we're kind of seeing we've seen that Trip has kind of moved really far to one side his training as an operative his working with section 31 but I, I feel like we're kind of seeing the redemption of him slowly and I really liked this storyline here with him with Trip, and uh, I, I think that it's really going to pay off in that in that upcoming book that Bennett's got coming up for us in next year the Enterprise um and wow, I kind of really want to see when he uh, tells Hoshi because I think she might, you know, knock him out. Yeah, well, I mean, she does mention in uh, in one episode, uh, I can't remember what martial art she's an expert in, but she apparently, uh, was it, um, decked her commander at the academy or something like that. So Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, so. this, this could be dangerous. And I, I, I love how Travis, you know, says, are you going to tell Hoshi? <laughs> He says, ah, I'm not that brave yet, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and what I loved, you know, they have that whole conversation at the end, too, you know, about how they'll never get the old gang back together. And I thought it was it was much to us, the reader. You know, the old gang is never going to be back together the way it was. Mm. 
But at the same time, I think that they've almost found a way to have Trip back. Um, you know, if you tell Hoshi, then he really can be back more at the forefront of these stories. Maybe he's just the engineer now on the uh, the Pioneer, or maybe oh, God, wouldn't it be great if if um, they gave Malcolm a Columbia class ship for the mission he need, he's going to be on? You know, I feel like he needs a bigger mm-hmm, ship. Definitely, um, <laughs> he deserves know, a bigger so, ship. <laughs> Yeah, heck yeah. Um, So, uh, you know, I really love that this storyline, we're seeing, again, that redemption of Trip, and and he has paid a terrible price for what he did, but also what he did help save the Federation Mm -hmm. from annihilation before it even started. And that, um, at the same time, coming face-to-face with Travis again, helped him tapped back into a part of himself that he might have lost mm-hmm. and uh or almost lost i do love that as as far as he's gone and as as much as he's done to distance himself from his past life and as angry as that made travis you know enough of his strength of character really showed through in his actions uh at the end of this novel that he was really able to patch up that relationship with Mayweather because you know even though he's done all these things and and like i said really distanced distanced himself from the life he led before he's still trip deep down and Mayweather recognizes this and sees the good in him to borrow another phrase <laughs> um there's a lot that's been damaged by the actions he's had to take over the years, but because Trip is such a good character and just a genuine good person, there's a lot that can be done to salvage that and to, to regain hopefully almost everything that he's lost. It's going to be, it's going to be a long road for Trip. Um, getting from there, getting to here. from there to here. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's been really cool to watch him come back. And I, I, you know, he's always been my favorite Enterprise character, and I really do hope to see him be able to come to the forefront a little bit more, um, in, in a more than he has mm-hmm. been able to, you know, to come out of the shadows. And uh, obviously, with this Ware storyline, I think he's going to get the fact to work with Travis a little bit more and with Reed, which is exciting. I love those three together. What I love is that Travis has lost some of that naivety that he had. And his experience in this book helps him realize that there are some times that you do have to keep secrets. And he can understand why Trip did what he did. And it, it was a very mature conversation that they have. You know, we, we sometimes have those tropey conversations where characters misunderstand each other for no apparent reason other than we need it for the story. You know, and uh, it was nice to see that Travis has grown enough that he can put himself in Tripp's shoes and, and maybe think a little bit, okay, why did Tripp do what he did? And maybe I won't completely understand it, but I can understand some of it. And that's enough mm-hmm. because he's still my friend. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and two, uh, you know, there's a part of that whole thing. You know, if Travis just rejects Trip. Sometimes that just drives people further into what they're doing. And um, I think his acceptance of Trip is going to have the complete opposite effect. It's going to kind of kind of bring Trip more forward back into the light. And that's a really cool thing to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the more Trip we get, 
the happier I am, definitely. And I do have to admit, um, Christopher Bennett has kind of had his work cut out for him trying to get him back into the fold. And it was really great to see him working alongside Reed and Travis again in the pages of this novel. But it was really difficult to picture him as a redhead with a beard <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, that it was funny. Um, I just kind of imagined him as that. You remember that guy on the Next Generation episode who can't speak? And he has oh, the, yeah. he's the, the, I can't remember his name, uh, but they just Revan, did the mission log on it. Yeah. So um, I kind of imagined him a little bit like that with the shaggy red hair and the big full beard. And so, um, hmm. yeah, and Connor Trenier could pull oh, it off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, if he so. can be a wraith on Stargate, he can, uh, he can. Yeah, heck, he can. He do can do trip in so. disguise. <laughs> well, um, Dan, what would you end up rating Uncertain Logic um, now that we've kind of talked about? And we haven't talked about everything. Folks, there's so much more in this book that we haven't talked about. We didn't spoil some great cameos as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you may have think we've really tore this book apart. Uh, and we haven't. There's there's a ton more that goes into this storyline. Yeah, this is so, a very dense story um, for sure. It is. Now, I do have to say, not quite as dense as the second book, I don't think, because the politics is Saria left my head spinning a little bit with all the different factions, and I had a hard time, I'm not going to lie, keeping up with everything that happened there. Uh, but there are a lot of storylines in this book, and uh, definitely some things set up for what's going to come next. So, But all in all, what, what do you think, Dan? What would you, what would you rate this? Well, uh, I, I very much enjoyed this novel. Um, I think of the three Rise of the Federation novels so far, this has been my favorite. I realize that's hard to say so soon after it, you know, really fresh in my mind. But I, I think I can go on a, out on a limb and say this is the best outing uh, for this these these characters under Christopher L. Bennett. And also, of the novels we've had this year, of which there have been really good ones already, uh, this is so far my favorite novel of the of of 2015, Star Trek-wise. So as far as a rating goes, it's going to have to be really high, and I think my rating is going to have to be 5 out of 5 almost perfectly forged Kirsharas. Wow, that is... Um... That is a great rating. Um, you know, I this is a great book. There's just no denying it. And um, it's not perfect uh, for me just because there's one storyline of the Delton storyline that um, the, the payoff here doesn't come in this book. I think it's going to be in the next book. I think there's going to be some, some real resolution to uh, that storyline there and, and, and more extrapolation on it too. But there are parts of me that felt like it was taking away from the Ware storyline and, and the, the Vulcan storyline when I would have really liked to seen just more done there. And I, I was just wanting to get back to those storylines, let me put it that way. Um, that's not to say they weren't really great and very interesting. So the, they're really well told. I had no problem with them. It just... Um, I know that 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 payoff for them isn't going to quite come yet. So, um, but on a whole, I, I, you know, this is this is an amazing. We've had some great storyline. I really enjoyed Takedown. I I enjoyed the missing, 
and this is another fantastic outing. And Christopher Bennett, to me, just keeps hitting him out of the park with his Rise of the Federation novels, and I, I really do like this. And so I'm going to have to say that this is, to me, um, one Delton experience. Wow, that's possibly the best rating I've ever heard. well i mean we have some great stuff coming up too this year crisis of conscience um you know armageddon's arrow uh sacraments of fire uh and then of course uh we've got the atonement coming up really looking forward to that uh, kirsten fire (laughs) yeah exactly sight unseen i so uh this year has just been uh, some great stuff and uh, i can't wait to see what we have next if the beginning of this year is any indication it looks like the quality is pretty excellent for this year well matthew that was a really great discussion about like i said one of my favorite star trek novels of uh, uh in a while uncertain logic uh i really love getting the chance to really dissect these stories and talk about the themes and implications of what happens in them you know uh this is just we talked through and 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 literally this book we could have gone super in depth with with the, the philosophical discussions that you get from this book and that's a whole different podcast honestly <laughs> the, the the those discussions but what's great is that Chris's book is leading us to those discussions mm-hmm. and that's what i really love about a great Star Trek novel is that it stays with you and it has you thinking more and more as you go through. And so I think that, yeah, that's what makes this book hold up. And it what's, it's what makes this a really interesting storyline. And having this huge canvas to play with, I love it. Um, and I'm sure it's got to be for Bennett a tough thing to maybe rein some of the storylines and the story ideas that he has in. Um, I I even remember reading just on the Trek BBS him talking about, you know, some of these storylines end up taking more page count than he thinks they're going to, <laughs> like the Vulcan storyline, and they kind of push things aside. So, you know, there's such a wide open canvas, um, and I love the fact that he's just filling it in, and it, it makes it a really exciting place to, to be at this well, point. Well, hopefully that just means there's a lot more great stories to come in this series. I, I hope it doesn't end anytime soon because I'm really enjoying it. Well, Dan, Uncertain Logic is definitely not the only thing that we have been talking about on Trek FM this past week, so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was, and if it had not been successful, then it, it, you know, it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kittimer yep. Accords. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other They probably at least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out! Now! <laughs> the Ready Room. The movie series would not have relaunched 
and and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of the Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, the best of both worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, I've always liked the... Uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss droids in distress and fight or flight and everything like that and i was just kind of watching the background but all of a sudden i started catching myself like stopping working and <laughs> just focusing on watching and uh, and so it just got better and better and better and i think i was hooked by episode four breaking rings that's when i was like okay i like this show this is good warp five in the history of axanar Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You will find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can do something that will help us out greatly for this show. Give us a star rating and review. That really does help the ratings for the show. It helps us rise in the, in the iTunes rankings, and it makes us easier for people to find when they're searching for podcasts in iTunes. And we'd love for more people to find Literary Treks or any of the shows on our network. And you can also do that by hitting the subscribe button as well. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered. You can find the shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. If you love us bringing Star Trek podcasts to you every week, the best way to do that, to help us out, is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. We are a listener-supported network, and without you, there's just no way that we can cover all the costs with all the hosts and everything going on here and, and really keep this content coming to you at the, at the level that we do. You can become a patron on the network by visiting patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. And you'll find current goals, the milestone contribution levels that we're trying to get to. And there's some great perks that we have for you. Guys, we appreciate all the support you give us. And we hope that you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, just look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com. We're on Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and of course, we're on the Babel Conference. That's the best place to have a discussion with us about the books that we talk about here. It's a great place. And of course, you can just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And we also have our Goodreads discussion group where we keep a list of all the books that you see 
um, all the things that we've done so far, and we have some great discussions going over there as well. So if you're really enjoying kind of getting in depth, we've got some enterprise book discussions going on, destiny books discussions, things that we're just reading in general, and you'll see what we're currently reading, which will tell you exactly where we're going to be going in the upcoming episodes here on Literary Treks. Want to thank Will Wim, our one of our associate producers. He's on Twitter at will underscore win. He's also the associate producer for The Orb and Earl Grey and Trek FM's content coordinator. We'd like to thank Lisa Stevens for supporting us and being an associate producer. You can find her on Twitter at Flip18. And Kenneth Tripp, thank you so much for being an associate producer on Literary Treks as well. Without you guys, man, it just um, means the world to us that you're supporting us like you, like you do. And then, of course, without you, we can't really do this. So thank you. Now, Dan, when you're not trying to find your way back to Deneva 4, where can we find you? Uh, well, Matthew, uh, you can find me online. And I have a website where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, and that's treklit.com. I'm on facebook.com slash treklitreviews, and I'm on Twitter at treklitreviews, and my personal Twitter is at kertrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Um, and Matthew, when you're not attempting to overthrow the Vulcan government and restore it to its warrior origins, where can we find you? Vulcan Mandalorians forever! <laughs> Dan, if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me talking about Deep Space Nine with Chris Christopher Jones. That's right, the one and only Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine there on the orb. And then, of course, I do the 602 Club, our general geek show here on the network where I talk about all things geeky all the time. Ruby serves up great drinks. So if you just want to talk about, like, uh, or hear us talk about things like comics or uh, Indiana Jones, James Bond, Star Wars, uh, geez, all sorts of things. We even talked about something like Sky Captain, some kind of more obscure things. If you just want to learn about some things that you might not have known about, like Dragonheart, just look us up. We have a great time on that show. And of course, I have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>